When the White Sox and Cubs took the field at Comiskey Park on October 5, 1921, it was the first time the two sides had met in five years. Although neither team won the pennant in 1920, a City Series was never on the table. With the White Sox losing seven players in the last week of the season amidst scandal, it just didn't feel appropriate. Charles Comiskey said it wasn't in the best interest of baseball. When William Veck called Comiskey to issue a challenge in 1921, it was Veck's first foray into the local rivalry. In at least one newspaper column, a new era of city baseball was welcomed. There is hardly a crying or public demand for a city series, yet we feel that Messrs. Comiskey and Veck acted wisely in deciding to hold these contests. Rivalry shared by their followers has existed for 17 years. It is, we think, a stimulus to local baseball to keep alive this spirit. There is no such excitement as 1906 now, but many of us wonder which is the better team. A pessimist might express it, which is the worst team. But that's not the way we feel about it. There has been little for us in the 1921 pennant races. We may get a thrill out of the City Series. It had always been rare that neither team was competitive, but in 1921, the local baseball officials wanted to make sure that fans would always have something to look forward to at the end of the year. I'm Terry Bonadonna, and today on Chicago's Civil War, we find plenty of bright spots in the most mundane era yet of Chicago baseball, as well as telling some of the sad stories. By the end of today's episode, though, the Cubs will be charging towards a second golden age behind one of the most charismatic and exciting teams ever assembled. Off we go. By 1921, Charles Wiegman was no longer the owner of the Cubs. He had expanded his business from restaurants to baseball and then to movie theaters and pool halls. He had spent lavishly on his businesses, and over time, it wore on his bank account. Whenever Wiegman had to sell off some of his Cub stock, William Wrigley was there to buy it up. It's unclear exactly when Wrigley became the majority owner of the Cubs, but by the 1921 City Series, he was calling all of the shots. The man at his right hand was William Lewis Veck Sr. Veck had been a newspaper man who covered the local baseball scene for the Chicago Evening American. Wrigley was impressed by his articles breaking down the Cubs. According to legend, Beck was a guest of the Wrigley's for dinner one night, and while engaged in critiques of the Northside Club, Wrigley asked Veck if he thought he could do better running the team. Veck replied, I certainly couldn't do any worse. Wrigley told him to prove it, and hired him as vice president. It's impossible to prove the veracity of this story, but if it didn't happen quite like that, it should have. While the Cubs were closing the age of Charles's running Chicago baseball clubs and ushering in a new era of Williams, old Charles Comiskey was still holding down the fort on the south side. After the scandal of 1919, Comiskey was equal parts despondent and determined. For the rest of his life, he never quite got over the results of 1919, but it made him more resolute than ever to bring a new winner to Comiskey Park. He had a lot of parts to replace, but the Sox still had stars like Eddie Collins, Ray Schalk, and Red Faber on the roster. They didn't help much in 1921. That year's 62-92 and 92 record was a full six games worse than they had ever done before. The Cubs were only two games better, so even though neither team was good, there was a sense of legitimate competition on hand. 16,000 fans showed up to Comiskey Park for Game 1 of the City Series, their largest announced Wednesday crowd of the year. The opener was a fine pitcher's duel, with Grover Cleveland Alexander facing Dickie Kerr. The five-foot-seven-inch tall star of the 1919 World Series was triumphant. Wee Dick Kerr, as the newspapers called him, threw a complete game shutout 
while Alexander the Great allowed 10 hits, but only one earned run in a 2-0 loss. The White Sox made it two in a row the next day at Cubs Park. Red Faber tossed a good ball game, but was lost for the rest of the series when he wrenched his knee going after a chopper in the eighth inning. The rest of the Sox proved that they didn't need their star pitcher to beat the Cubs. They used some of their classic magic in the third game, trailing 3-0 in the bottom of the ninth inning. They had only one hit to that point off of Percy Jones, who was pitching on an injured foot. Then they scored three runs without getting another hit. Two walks and a fielder's choice were followed by a pop-up that dropped between right fielder Max Flack and center fielder George Mazel. The game was tied, and in the 10th, Amos Strunk's walk-off single gave the Sox a 3-0 series lead. Game 3 had been the second of the series started by Dickie Kerr. He didn't get the win, but he did pitch nine innings. Kerr was just 28 years old and had won 40 games over the previous two years, but this was the last City Series game he ever started. He wouldn't start another game in the majors for four years. After the season, Kerr got into a contract dispute with Comiskey and White Sox secretary Harry Grabner. This wasn't uncommon. He had held out the previous two years as well. This time, though, they never came to terms. Kerr decided to start the 22 season with a local semi-pro club. This was a big no-no in the eyes of the new commissioner. Kennesaw Mountain Landis banned him for appearing in the other league, and his career as a big leaguer was effectively over. The ban was lifted in 1925, and he returned to throw 36 innings, plus one in the City Series, but by then his arm was worn out. But Kerr's story doesn't have a sad ending. He went on to a long, successful career as a coach and scout. While managing in the St. Louis Cardinals system in 1940, he mentored a young pitcher named Stan Musial. When Musial hurt his arm, Kerr helped convince him to move to the outfield full-time. The two developed a close relationship, and Musial even named his first son, Richard, after his minor league manager. Late in his life, when Kerr was struggling financially, Musial bought him a house. He called the old White Sox pitcher the best friend he ever had. Kerr's work wasn't quite done in the 1921 City Series. The Sox bested Alexander in another close one in Game 4, but the series went on. The City Series, governed by the Commissioner's Office, was bound to the same rules as the World Series, and since 1919, the World Series had been best of nine. That meant that with a 4-0 series lead, the White Sox still needed one more win. Only 7,000 fans showed up for the finale, one of the reasons that Commissioner Landis ended the nine-game series after the season. He claimed it dragged on too long. In Game 5, the Sox held a narrow lead over the Cubs in the sixth inning when Dickie Kerr came out of the bullpen and shut the door over the final four innings. The Sox won 9-5. It was a five-game sweep. In 1916, they had swept the Cubs in four straight, and they had won the last three in 1915 as well. In between, they won a World Series, fought in a war, and suffered through the biggest scandal in the game's history. But one thing was constant. They had dominated the Cubs for 12 straight wins. The 1922 White Sox were a pleasant surprise as they recovered from their worst season ever to climb back to the 500 mark. With Eddie Collins still anchoring the lineup, the Sox now had a formidable outfield as well, including youngsters Johnny Mostel and Bib Falk, and future Hall of Famer Harry Hooper, who had been acquired in a trade with Boston. Urban Red Faber won 20 games for the fourth time in his career and led the league in ERA. He was bolstered in the rotation by two impressive rookies, Ted Blankenship and the man who provided the highlight of the season for the Sox, Charlie Robertson. On April 30th, in just his fourth career start, Robertson threw the third perfect game in Major League history. It turned out to be the high point of his career. He won 14 games as a rookie, but never matched that total again. 
He finished with a career record of 49 and 80, the worst ever for a perfect game hurler. He ended up as a healthy scratch from the 22 City Series and went 1 and 2 in his three career starts against the Cubs. Robertson became the longtime answer to a trivia question as there wasn't another perfect game thrown for 34 years. Although the rest of his baseball career didn't go as planned, he appeared in a 1956 episode of the game show What's My Line, where he revealed a successful second career as a pecan broker. Like the Southsiders, the Cubs had a nice bounce back in 1922, finishing three games better than the Sox at 80 and 74. So it was with a great deal of confidence that Bill Veck offered a challenge for the City Series. A sellout crowd filled Cubs Park on October 4th for Game 1, and to the shock of no one, Red Faber carried the day. He threw a complete game to beat the home team 6-2. It was the White Sox 13th straight City Series victory. 1922 was an important year for the Chicago rivalry. With both teams having improved dramatically, attendance was way up on both sides of town. The excitement in the local press for the October Series was starting to shine through again. The last hurdle that stood in the way of a classic City Series was the Cubs' inability to win a game. The rivalry may have been fierce, but Northside fans didn't have a lot to crow about. Their team hadn't beaten the White Sox in the series in 13 years. They hadn't won a game in five. If this rivalry was ever going to really capture the public's attention again, the Cubs needed to make it competitive. In Game 2, they did just that. Zeb Terry led a 14-hit attack, collecting four of them and four runs all on his own. The Cubs ran away to a 10-3 win. The only highlight for the Sox came in a publicity stunt, when they sent Cubs legend Johnny Evers out to play third base for the last inning. Evers had started one game during the 1922 season for the Sox, but otherwise he hadn't appeared in a big league game since 1917. His last City Series appearance had been 1913. The crowd was happy to see him, but he neither batted nor had a chance in the field. After Game 2, with the series tied at 1, rain marred the middle games. Four straight days were rained out, knocking out what would have been huge weekend crowds at Comiskey Park. When play finally resumed on Wednesday, the Cubs shocked the Southside crowd, jumping on Red Faber early. The White Sox fought back and the game was tied in the seventh inning when Ray Grimes hit a three-run homer, giving the Cubs an 8-5 win. Now ahead in the series, two games to one, the Northsiders returned to their home park with Grover Alexander on the mound. He got off to a great start, leading 3-0 in the sixth, but then... His center fielder Jigger Stats muffed a routine fly ball, allowing two runs to score. The White Sox rallied to tie it, and they won the game in the ninth when Harry Hooper doubled and Earl Sheely singled him in. The Cubs won easily in Game 5, so they had a chance to win it all in the next one. Red Faber and the Cubs' tiny Osborne were both brilliant in the sixth game. It was still scoreless in the bottom of the ninth inning. That's when the White Sox loaded the bases with one out. Osborne remained on the mound to face Ray Schalk, who pushed a bunt to the left side past the pitcher's mound. Shortstop Charlie Holliker charged, gathered the ball, and threw home. Bob O'Farrell stood on the plate and received the toss. But it was late by a hair. Earl Sheely slid across the plate with the winning run, forcing Game 7. It was the Cubs' turn to host, but they moved the game to the south side to pack in a bigger crowd. More than 32,000 fans jammed in to see a contest befitting a deciding game. In the words of the Tribune's Irving Vaughn, or something worth looking at, the game was a masterpiece. Grover Cleveland Alexander was on the mound for the Cubs and was magnificent. He scattered seven hits but buckled down when he needed to. The Cubs pushed across a pair of runs in the sixth and seventh, and that was all Alexander needed. Two to nothing was the final score, and at last, the streak was over. 
After losing seven in a row, the Cubs were city champions for the first time since 1909. After the game, burglars broke into the Comiskey Park safe looking to steal the $28,000 in gate receipts. Fortunately, most of the money had already been taken to the bank. A few weeks later, the Cubs announced plans not to lose out on hosting Game 7 next time. They planned a ballpark renovation over the offseason that nearly doubled the capacity to 31000 The upper deck would come a few years later. After the excitement of 1922, the next year was a bit of a disappointment. The Cubs held steady while the White Sox took a step back. It was Charles Comiskey's turn to issue a challenge for the City Series on September 16th. Representatives from both clubs met at Commissioner Landis' office for the ceremonial coin flip. It was convenient that the Commissioner's office, like the American and Federal League offices before it, was located in Chicago. The Cubs won the toss and opened the series at home. The newly expanded Cubs Park held 24,000 fans for the opener as the Cubs won easily behind Grover Cleveland Alexander's complete game. The game marked the City Series debuts for two notables. Gabby Hartnett was the Cubs' starting catcher. Hartnett had been a 21-year-old rookie on the 1922 squad, but didn't find his way into a postseason game. In all, he went on to play in 51 games against the White Sox, the most of any Cub. When Sox starter Charlie Robertson struggled out of the gate, he was replaced by Ted Lyons, who threw the last four and two-thirds innings. Lyons was just 22 years old. He pitched in the majors until he was 45 and never missed another City Series. The Cubs won again in Game 2, but the White Sox got a big boost in the third contest when Red Faber pitched a complete game and won 4-2. It was Faber's first legitimate start in over a month. He had thrown two innings in the last game of the regular season as a tune-up, but wasn't sure if he'd be able to go in the City Championship. Not only was he able... He was masterful, allowing only six hits and getting the Sox back in the series. They had a chance to even it up in Game 4, and what an atmosphere to do it in. Nearly 42,000 fans were on hand for one of the all-time Chicago classics. There were twists and turns, fistfights in the stands, and dramatic moments aplenty. The Sox captured a 3-0 lead before the Cubs came back to tie it. With the game apparently on the line in the fifth inning, the White Sox loaded the bases with no outs but Tony Kaufman struck out the next three men consecutively to preserve the tie score. It was still 3-3 in the bottom of the ninth. With Harry Hooper on first base and one out, Kaufman delivered, and Earl Sheely drove one deep down the left field line. It disappeared into the crowd, and Comiskey Park was up for grabs. White Sox fans went wild celebrating the walk-off homer. Cubs fans went wild arguing that it hadn't cleared the wall. There were thousands of fans on the field, shortening the playing surface by an estimated 75 feet. No one would ever truly know where Sheely's ball landed, but it was ruled a home run, and the Cubs could not get it overturned. Fights broke out between fans of the two teams, but the ruling was final. The White Sox were victorious. Now the Southsiders had all the momentum. Willie Cam's two homers led them to a Game 5 win, and they needed just one more to take the series. Trailing 3-1 in the ninth inning of Game 6, they got gift after gift from the Cubs, who committed five errors in the game, four in the last two frames. The White Sox tied the score in the ninth, and in the tenth inning, Cubs second baseman George Grantham booted an easy grounder to let the winning run score. The White Sox had won four straight games and were once again city champions. Grantham never got over the error. He was ridiculed and jeered by Cubs fans all of the next year, and when it was over, they traded him to Pittsburgh. The 1923 offseason was an active one in Chicago. 
The day after the series ended, Kid Gleason stepped down as White Sox manager. He said that he had made his decision days earlier, but wanted to present Comiskey a city title with his resignation. Almost immediately, rumors began to swirl that the White Sox would replace their skipper with Frank Chance. Shortly after, the rumors were confirmed by Secretary Harry Grabner. You can tell Chicago fans that we have signed Frank Chance. We certainly are fortunate in signing him, and I am sure that he is happy to return to baseball in Chicago. It had been 11 years since Chance departed the Cubs. In the interim, he had managed in New York and Boston without much success, but Chicago was thrilled to have him back. He would have a local look to his coaching staff, too. He brought on Ed Walsh and Johnny Evers as his assistants. Word spread that the Cubs would have an ex-White Sox skipper on their staff as well. For a moment, it appeared that Kid Gleason would be hired as the bench coach on the north side, but it didn't happen. Neither did Frank Chance's managerial stint with the White Sox. Just before spring training, he announced his resignation due to health issues. Charles Comiskey refused to accept it. He told the peerless leader that the job was there for him when he was healthy enough. That day never came. He tried to join the team in April, but suffered a setback and had to return to the West Coast. Chance didn't live to see another city series. He died near his home in Los Angeles on September 15th, just a week after his 48th birthday. A combination of Ed Walsh, Johnny Evers, and Eddie Collins took the managerial reins of the White Sox in 1924, and although neither the Sox nor the Cubs had exceptional seasons, there was again excitement in October as they squared off for the city's championship. The Cubs appeared to get a shot in the arm when Charlie Holliker returned to town for the series. Holliker had been feeling ill and was sent home in early September to rest up for the battle with the White Sox. Upon his return, though, he was a non-factor. He appeared only once in Game 3, when he walked and scored. Later, he grounded into a double play to end the game. That was the last at-bat of his career. The story of Charlie Holliker is a tragic one. In seven seasons with the Cubs, he hit 304. Twice he batted 340, and he led the league in hits once. He had the makings of a star. But midway through 1923, he quit and left a note that said, Feeling pretty rotten, so made up my mind to go home and take a rest and forget baseball for the rest of the year. No hard feelings, just didn't feel like playing anymore. He returned the next year but dealt with the same ailment and appeared in only 76 games. Doctors couldn't figure out what the problem was, but the benefit of hindsight suggests that the illness may have been more mental than physical. Holliker retired from baseball at the age of 28. He lived another 16 years, but in August of 1940, he bought a new shotgun and shot himself in the throat. A sad end to the life of a once great ball player. The 1924 City Series began with a disappointment. Local media suggested that Game 1 might pit Alexander against Faber, the two superstars of their respective pitching staffs. Instead, Johnny Evers decided to start Ted Lyons, another future Hall of Famer, but one who hadn't quite rounded into form yet. Faber started Game 3, and the two greats never did end up squaring off head-to-head. It didn't much matter who was pitching in this series, nobody could get consistent outs. It had been four years since the lively ball was introduced in conjunction with the slugging exploits of Babe Ruth. The new offensive game was making its way to Chicago. In all, the series went six games and 77 runs were scored. Back in the first city series, there were only 86 runs in 14 games. This was a new era. Nine home runs were hit in the series, more than in the first six city series combined. The new era was exemplified in another way, too. The 1924 City Series marked the first time that Chicago baseball 
was broadcast on the radio. All six games were called for WGN by Sen Caney. Since the press box wasn't set up for live broadcasts, Caney, who had no experience as a baseball announcer at the time, and again, who did, carried a microphone to the top of the grandstand at both parks. The broadcasts were a huge hit, and soon after, all games were on the radio. But we'll get to that next week. The White Sox dropped the first game of the series, but won the next three. They ended up taking it in six. None of the games was particularly close. After the series, Chicago's Old Timers Baseball Association held a banquet at which they presented a championship emblem to the White Sox for winning the city title. The Cubs' series loss underscored a problem that had been brewing on the north side. They weren't getting any better. For three straight years, under William Wrigley and William Vack and manager William Killifer, they had finished with a winning record but hadn't placed higher than fourth. After a slow start to the 1925 season, they fired Bill Killifer and named shortstop Rabbit Moranville their new manager. This was a bad move. Moranville had been a good player but was a wild card personally. The Cubs felt that giving him the extra responsibility would calm him down, but boy were they wrong. Moranville celebrated his promotion to manager by getting drunk on the team's overnight train ride to Brooklyn and waking his players by pouring ice water on them. His short stint as manager was also marked by public fights with cab drivers and police officers. He dropped water balloons off his hotel balcony onto passers-by, and when no water was available, he was known to empty spittoons over his players' heads. The Cubs finished in last place for the only time in the first 73 years of the franchise. The White Sox, under player-manager Eddie Collins, wrapped up 1925 with a winning record for the first time in five years. The City Series was expected to be a cakewalk for the American Leaguers. We know better than that by now, though. Game 1 at Comiskey Park featured 39-year-old Grover Alexander against 24-year-old Ted Blankenship. Both men were brilliant. The White Sox jumped out to a 2-0 lead, but Alexander himself tied the score in the fifth inning with a sacrifice fly. Then the pitchers really went to work, putting zero after zero on the scoreboard. It was still 2-2 as the game reached extra innings. The White Sox seemed to threaten every frame, but just couldn't push the winning run across against the wily veteran Alexander. Blankenship was dominant. The Cubs managed only four hits in extra innings against the young right-hander. The game made it to the bottom of the 18th, still tied. With a runner at third and two out, Alexander tried to intentionally walk Ray Schalk, but Schalk reached his bat out and poked the ball down the right field line. It went foul by an inch. He flew out to right field on the next pitch. The White Sox put their leadoff man on base in every inning after the 12th, but they left 16 runners on base in the game. Finally, in the bottom of the 19th, Bill Barrett grounded out with a man on for the third out of the inning. As Alexander walked off the mound, the umpires called it off. It was too dark to continue, and the game would be replayed the next day. For 19 innings, Alexander and Blankenship went toe-to-toe. There were 31 total hits, but only four runs. It was one of the most thrilling pitcher's duels the game had ever seen, but it ended in a tie. Officially, it was never even played. The 19-inning performance was the last great moment in a Cubs uniform for Grover Cleveland Alexander. He had been a stalwart in the team's rotation for seven years, but life was never quite the same for him after the war. He had spent seven weeks fighting at the front during World War I and suffered hearing loss in his left ear due to constant bombings. His right ear was wounded by flying shrapnel, and his pitching arm was permanently damaged from operating a howitzer. When he returned, he suffered from shell shock and alcoholism. The alcoholism grew to be too much for the Cubs to handle in 1926. 
midway through the season, they presented him with a car and shortly after released him. He wasn't done just yet, though. He was picked up by the Cardinals, and in that year's World Series, with his team facing elimination, he beat the Yankees in Game 6 with a complete game. The next day, he came back with the bases loaded in the seventh inning and struck out Tony Lazeri to preserve a 3-2 lead. He finished the last two and a third innings for the save as the Cardinals won their first world championship. After the Alexander-Blankenship duel in Game 1 of the 1925 City Series, the games that actually counted were kind of a letdown. The Cubs won the series easily, dropping just one game. The upset win was exactly what fans had come to expect, but usually it was the White Sox pulling the upset. The Northsiders' final victory was overshadowed somewhat by reports that the Cubs had hired their next manager. In fact, he was in the ballpark for the Game 5 win. The new man was 38-year-old Joe McCarthy, who had been poached from the Louisville Colonels of the American Association. The move was a curious one. As both a player and manager, McCarthy was a career minor leaguer. That sort of hiring wasn't typically made at the major league level, where a current player was usually viewed as a safer bet than anyone without big league experience. See Moranville, Rabbit. But the bet on McCarthy paid off handsomely for the Cubs. He has been named by many experts as the greatest manager in big league history. Today, McCarthy ranks first all-time in winning percentage in World Series wins. He has the third most pennants and ranks eighth all-time in total wins. Most of that success didn't come in Chicago, but it certainly started there. The 1926 Cubs barely resembled the previous year's squad. Two-thirds of their outfield was swapped out with Riggs Stevenson and Hack Wilson immediately becoming the top two hitters on the team. With old Pete Alexander off to St. Louis, the new ace on the mound was Charlie Root, a 27-year-old rookie who would go on to win more career games than any other Cub. They improved by 14 games and finished with a near-identical record to that of the Sox. That made it anybody's game when the two sides met up in October, and the series played out that way. It was marked more than anything by the great individual pitching performances. Charlie Root tossed a four-hit shutout in Game 1, and his teammate Percy Jones not only threw a shutout, but had the only RBI in a 1-0 Game 3 win. Ted Blankenship got the Cubs back with a six-hitter in a Game 4 win. The whole series was well-pitched and dead-even heading into the seventh game. It was Blankenship against Root on the mound, and the White Sox drew first blood on a Mo Berg RBI double in the fourth inning. Berg may have been the most interesting person ever to play in the City Series. Known more as a catcher, he started every game of the 26 series at shortstop and hit 318 in the seven games. A graduate of Princeton, Berg could speak 12 languages, and during World War II, he acted as a spy with the Office of Strategic Services, a forerunner to the CIA. On October 7, 1926, though, he had to settle for his role as a baseball hero, one the journeyman didn't often get to play. He reached base four times in support of Blankenship's second shutout of the series, and the White Sox won three to nothing, recapturing the city crown. With the enthusiasm of 1926 behind them, it was only right for the baseball fans of Chicago to look forward to the next year with great anticipation. Both of the city's franchises seemed to be headed in exciting directions. Within the next year, though, both teams would experience heartbreak on and off the field. By the end of 1927, they were headed in total opposite directions. One to historic heights, the other to a long stay in the cellar. Next time, a big time boxing match, a ball lost in the sun, and a eulogy for some of the greatest baseball men there have ever been. 
All this while Chicago gets Cubs fever as the North Side team captures the imagination of the city and the nation. But does that mean they can finally beat the Sox? Well, we'll talk it over next week on Chicago's Civil War. Be here, won't you? In the meantime, if you've missed any of the previous episodes, or you're just hungry for more information, head over to terrybonadonna.com city dash series. Hopefully you'll find what you're looking for there. Thank you.